God freely entered into a covenant of restoration and blessing with Abraham. By faith, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This covenant promise made with our fathers in faith flows effectually throughout generations. God's New Testament people are now heirs according to the promise. What God started in Genesis is now sealed and secure in Christ Jesus. Good morning. We continue this morning uh, our study of this, this sort of middle section of the book of Genesis. Genesis divides pretty naturally into three major sections. They're not equal in size, um, but, but they, they sort of group in, in theme. The first 11 chapters of Genesis deal with the matter of, of the foundations of, well, pretty much everything in God's creation. We spent from uh, the beginning of the year, last year, up till about Easter time in that first 11 chapters of Genesis. We return now to this central section and largest section of Genesis, which we could, we, we, we've called it fathers of the faith, the, um, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The last section of Genesis, the last 15 chapters or so, deal with the life of Joseph. But for now, we are in Genesis 12. This is our first, I mean, the second Sunday of this, of this series, which is going to go on for some time to come. If you were here last week, or all you know about Abram is what you encounter in the first nine verses of Genesis 12, you, you would have reason to kind of, well, classify him up on sort of a hero's pedestal. Dangerous business, that. But you, could, you, 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 you see Abram doing some remarkable things in the first nine verses. He is, after all, labeled as, as, as the father of, of the faithful. And, and there are some remarkable achievements in those first nine verses. He, at the age of 75, he hears from God and departs everything he's ever known, geographically, culturally. He, he departs his home territory and, and makes his way to the land of Canaan, a land which successive generations will call the promised land, specifically because in this passage, God promises that land to Abram. And, uh, and, and he strikes out in remarkable obedience. Along the way, he builds at two different locations. He builds an altar of worship to the, the living God, even in territory that belongs at that point to the, to the polytheistic pagan Canaanites. And sort of right in their spot, he builds altars twice to the living God. He, he hears from God. He cries out to God, all in those first nine verses. He's doing pretty well. And we might be tempted to think, oh man, here, 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 walks, here walks a hero. Be careful with that in the word of God. The hero is always Jesus. And the, the, the people that we meet along the way in this, which is not a work of fiction. Abram is a historical figure. And when God preserves his story for us, 
We're going to get it, warts and all. And uh, this morning, we come to a passage where we're going to see some warts. Because from, from sort of that, that epic, solid behavior, we're going to see Abram, well, I've entitled the passage this morning, the message this morning, When the Faithful Fail. So let me read from Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 10, down to the end of the chapter. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they'll kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camel. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. All right, let's dive in. Roman numeral one, Abram's plan. Abram's plan. There's a famine in the land. So Abram heads to Egypt. He comes up with, a, with an alternative, a way of dealing with this famine. And it was a severe famine, according to the latter part of verse 10. The, the, the famine is, is, a, is a trial. It's not punishment. Just like in your life, things can, can go into a difficult season. And, and perhaps if there is a, a sin in your life that you're not dealing with, child of God, perhaps it is the, the chastising, correcting hand of God seeking to bring you back. This famine does not seem to be that. It's a, it's a trial. <laughs> you know, the trials that come in our lives can, can be for multiple reasons. I think I can give you a, a sort of a simplistic grid to understand God's purpose in trials. But first, let me tell you what, what, what trials are not. Your trial is not so that God can have an update on how you're doing. Your trial is not to give God an update. Do you know why? 
because God never needs an update. Perhaps it has not occurred to you, but nothing has ever occurred to him. Omniscient, omnitemporal doesn't learn. He knows everything from all points in time and always has. He knows how you're doing better than you know how you're doing. And thus, one of the purposes of your trial. Your trial's not to inform him, it's to inform you. How am I doing as I grow into the image of Christ? Oh, I did not handle that well. Well, now I know about a weak spot where I need some work. Your trial is to inform you. Your trial is also to form you. If you've been a child of God for long and you've, you've paid attention to the seasons in your life that are the growth seasons, now you and I both know that the easy seasons, and praise God for easy seasons, it's not a bad thing to get an occasional breather. But the easy seasons are not the seasons where you have grown, where you have gone deeper into your love relationship with Jesus. Difficult seasons do that. Trials do that. So your trial, your famine, is to inform you and to form you more into the image of God. We'll never know, but I, I wonder sometimes, what if, what if Abram? <laughs> it's interesting. Once we get to verse 10, there ain't no more altar building. There ain't no more praying. Now it's just Abram and his solution. And I wonder when that famine broke out, what if Abram had built yet another altar and said, all right, Lord, I know you brought me here. I know you know I got to eat. Lord, what now? Your will has brought me to this difficult place. How can I trust you more that your will would bring me through? That'd be a wonderful thing for Abram to have done, but he didn't. Um... which exemplifies letter B on your outline. What do we do when common sense and God's word point us in opposite directions? Now, Abram didn't have the completed word of God. So by whatever means, Abram is absolutely, we're absolutely clear Abram's hearing from God. You and I have something far more substantial than even what Abram had. Don't you ever envy these Old Testament characters that hear from God? Because you've got everything they heard and a whole lot more in God's word. Well, Abram had a little bit and he wasn't aligning with it well because when the crisis came, whoop comes the common sense. So what do we do when common sense and God's word point us in opposite directions? It's not by accident that thinking biblically is such a key part of our church's purpose statement. Because thinking biblically will never be 
the gut response when things go wrong. Lining up with God's word sometimes will put you at direct odds with common sense. I mean, really, think about, think about giving. Why, why in the world should you give? I mean, look around, the church is doing okay. Maybe you're not doing okay. Why should you keep giving? That doesn't make any sense. Except that God has called you to a life of joyful generosity and you are in a covenant relationship with this body of Christ if you're a member. Therefore, you've said you'll give. Well, that's thinking biblically, but it's not common sense. What about, what about staying in a difficult marriage? I mean, surely of all the things God wants, God wants me to be happy. Huh. Common sense says if your marriage is in a difficult season, bail out. Happens all the time. The word of God says the living God hates divorce. And he's teaching you something about persevering and through your marriage he wants to teach the world something about the gospel. What about, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have to sue that. I know that guy says he's a Christian but I'm gonna have to sue him because he did me wrong and he won't do the right thing so I'm gonna sue that rascal. Well, you, you know the Bible says a Christian cannot sue a Christian. Yeah, I know it says that but, but I mean, let's have some common sense here. Ooh, you are, you are so far out on the thin ice. I could go to sunset with examples where common sense is going to suggest one course of action and the word of God is going to suggest another. And if you get it wrong at that fork in the road, you, you are going to tumble into greater sin and greater difficulty. Roman 2, Abram's plot. Abram heads for Egypt. Now, Sarah was at this time 65 years old, but apparently she still had it. And they've been married for a while, and I, I suppose down the years... Probably on multiple occasions, Sarah had heard Abram say, baby, I love you. I imagine the vocabulary of love was not unknown in their marriage. I've given you again on your outline, letter A, our definition for love, lest you slip away from it. Love, the biblical kind of love, the Jesus kind of love, certainly the love we are to bring into our marriages, the love that we are to demonstrate to a world that doesn't know God. Love is an unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. Love will say, I will take upon myself whatever burden I have to bear if in bearing that burden, I am contributing to your being better. Not your being giddier, not your being happier, your being 
better. Love goes to well-being, not just happy emotional state. Nothing wrong with being happy. But if you root your definition of love in what makes you happy, your love is gonna go like a wind direction. That's love. So let's, let's, let's check out Abram's behavior here. In short, Abram, who's supposed to love Sarah, is gonna throw Sarah under the bus with both hands. It's one thing to take a bullet for somebody. He's gonna reach over to Sarah and put her in the path of the bullet so he doesn't have to take it. If you doubt me, look at, look at the phrases that I've highlighted in your notes. Sarah, play along with the whole you're my sister thing so that it may go well with me. That my life may be spared. This, this behavior is anything but loving. Abram is clearly acting in his own self-interest. He's drawing his wife into his deceitful narrative for the sake of his own self-interest. It's anything but love. And before I, before I move, move ahead, let me, let me just speak for a moment to, to, to the men in the room. Sir, especially if you are a husband and father, especially if God has given you a household, is this, is this the love that your children and especially your wife know that they can depend upon from you? If your, if your wife feels unprotected, unsecure, unsheltered, and you've been married more than a couple of weeks, Bubba, some of that is on you. At least some of that is on you. Does she know that nothing that would cause her harm gets to her without killing you first. Because you're going to get between her and whatever would cause her harm in everything you've got. That's what you mean or are to mean when you say you love her. And if she sees you acting in your own best interest at her expense, then don't you be surprised when she mirrors back insecurity at you. So men, let's make certain we're manning up. And all the godly men in the room said, amen. All right. Well, Abram blows it. And a catastrophic thing happens. Roman numeral three, it works. It works. You know what? You know what I wish? I, I wish that every time we sin, it would blow up on us in about two seconds. 
I think sin would be a lot less popular if, if we, we tell a lie and it goes boom. You know, we give a lustful thought and immediately have a splitting migraine. You know? I just, <laughs> I think sin would be a lot less, you know, popular. Well, catastrophically, and I think I've used that word in your notes, catastrophically, Abram's lie worked. He, he, he largely had the desired outcomes. And by the way, save you an email, Bible scholars, I know that it's, it's, a, it's only a half lie. It's a half truth. We will learn in Genesis chapter 20, verse 12, when Abram, by the way, pulls this same stunt again with another leader, we'll get to that in chapter 20, that, that Sarah is in fact his biological half-sister. Um, it's earlier in human history, these, are, these tribal behaviors, God has not given his law yet. The word of God does not condemn that aspect of the relationship. So, Brother Russell, technically, it's, it's a half-truth. Another word for half-truth is lie. So he's lying. Well, letter A, Pharaoh's people believed him. Because they took, they took Sarah, and off they went with her to add her to Pharaoh's woman collection. So they believed him. They would possibly not have done that if, if they had known she was his wife. They may have killed him. But they believed him. Further, Pharaoh treated him well. We have in verse 16 the statement, and for her sake, that is for Sarah's sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. Yeah, Abram was able to cozy right on up to the man who was probably at that time the world's most powerful political leader. Abram was able to strike up a good friendship with the one who symbolizes the world. Come with me to James chapter four, verse four. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, that is hostility, toward God, with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's not the right behavior. Now, he's not saying that you shouldn't have friends who are lost. I hope you have friends who are lost. And I hope in those relationships, you are not forgetting that your primary role in life is to be an ambassadorial witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what... Abram should have been up to thinking. Instead, he sees a chance to be somebody to somebody who he thinks is somebody. And his lie pays off. He gained a bunch of wealth. This, this statement in verse 16, he had sheep, oxen. We already knew he had, we know he had some livestock. Here what it's saying is, by his dealings with Pharaoh, he picked up even more. He got more sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Look at, look at Proverbs 21, 6 with me. 
Proverbs 21.6. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue. That is exactly what just happened in the book of Genesis. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. If you have to lie to get it, you don't want it. If you have to lie to get it, you don't want it. Look, if God, is, if God has blessed you with the capacity to earn and you have refined that and you can go to the marketplace and bring that God-given capacity to earn to the marketplace and succeed and earn well, as long as you don't fall in love with money, there's nothing going on there that's, that's counter to the word of God. But you start cutting corners, you start lying to get wealth, you're gonna find yourself with more wealth than you want. You're gonna find yourself snared and suddenly instead of you owning your stuff, your stuff will start owning you. And away we go. We're gonna see that Abram owning this extra stuff from Egypt doesn't lead to a good place. We come now to Roman 4, Abram's produce. I needed something for the outcome of a harvest. And I needed a word that would keep my alliteration intact, the P thing that I'm doing in my outline. So I came up with the word produce all on my own. Now I know what you're thinking, Brother Russell, that's a little bit gimmicky and cheesy. I disagree with you. I think it's a lot gimmicky and cheesy. But it will bring to mind this produce, bring to mind the law of the harvest. And if you're not familiar with the law of the harvest, come with me to Galatians chapter six and the law of the harvest. Galatians six, verses seven and eight. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Well, Abram's been planning this deceit, this immorality. What, what, what's gonna grow? Even as God graciously brings an end to Abram's lie, verse 17, Abram reaps a regrettable harvest. Look again at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And that was God's way of graciously breaking Abram's lie. Now it is interesting to note, just as a small footnote, I'm so accustomed to the health and wealth guys getting everything wrong that one more time when the Bible shows that they're wrong yet again, I hardly notice. But I do want to point it out to you. It is their thesis, oft repeated, that wealth is always a sign of God's blessing and illness is always a sign of God's curse, a failure of your fate. Look here in this text, the wealth is part of God's judgment on Abram. 
And the good health is God's grace breaking his sin. What do you mean the wealth is part of God's judgment? Well, it's interesting to note. I'm going to chase this rabbit for a minute. One paragraph from now in chapter 13, Abram's going to go back to, to Canaan with all this extra stuff he's picked up in Egypt. Lot has been with him the whole time, but for the first time, Abram and Lot have a conversation. Wow, where we are won't support all our livestock. Well, that never came up before, but Abram got a whole bunch of new livestock in Egypt. Well, where we are now won't support our livestock, so Lot, you're going to need to go somewhere else. And so Lot leaves with his stuff. Now, I don't want to spoil what's coming, but if you've read ahead, Lot's going somewhere else doesn't exactly end well. And Lot's bad ending has its roots in he and Abram not being able to live near each other, and that has its roots in Abram's extra stuff, and that has its roots in Abram's lie. There's a connection between this lie and the fiery judgment that's going to come down on Lot. Law of the harvest. His wife doesn't trust him. You say, well, how do you know that, Russell? How do you see that in verse 17? I admit I don't see it in verse 17. But as you trace their relationship going forward, does Sarah have confidence in Abraham and Abraham's relationship with God? God, God reiterates to them, you're going to have a child. And, and, and some time passes and they don't have a child. Do you remember what Sarah's suggestion is? Go make a baby with who? Hagar. Now, do you remember what we know about Hagar? She's an Egyptian servant. Guess when she joined the family? Hagar's in the Pharaoh package. And a wife that trusts her husband to know and do the will of God doesn't suggest that her husband go sleep with somebody else. So her trust is undermined. Second, there's a complete loss of testimony with Pharaoh. Okay, if Abram finds himself in Egypt, and he does, and he has a chance to befriend Pharaoh, and evidently he did, what an opportunity. I, I stand with you as a, as a child of the living God who is. All the gods of Egypt aren't, but there is a God of grace and mercy. There's a God who will forgive those who turn from their sin and trust him by faith. Abram had a chance to be an ambassador of the God who is into the life of Pharaoh. And instead, by his own sin and bad behavior, he wrecked it. Such that Pharaoh is having to morally coach the man of God. Look, if you're faithful to Jesus every now and then, you're going to lose some friends. Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. And among those lost friends that I said I hope you have, some of y'all aren't sharing Jesus and you're telling yourself it's because you don't want to push people away. Let me help you with that. They're away. If they're going to die and go to hell, that's as away as it gets. What are you afraid of pushing them away to that's worse than hell? Sometimes I fear that what we fear pushing them away, we fear pushing them away from us because we've got ego invested in the relationship. 
And we are content that they go to hell unwarned as long as we can be comfortable being their buddy right up till the funeral. God help us. Be faithful. Risk the relationship. And sometimes they're going to reject Jesus and reject you. But don't lose them because your sinful behavior wrecks the relationship. If you're, if you're next door trying to steal stuff out of your neighbor's car, it's probably not a good time to tell him about Jesus. Or the equivalent. Here, the equivalent. Pharaoh, the lost person, is having to chew out Abram, the man of God, because of Abram's sinful behavior. What a shame. Complete loss of testimony in that relationship. And then third, loss of territory. This is the first geographical mention of Egypt in the Bible. The word Egypt has occurred a couple of times, but it's been a proper name in some of those genealogies earlier in the Bible. This is the first time the place Egypt occurs as a place in your Bible. And the leader to be of the nation to be Israel introduces himself into Egypt with a lie, with sin, with immorality, with bad judgment. How have things gone for Israel and Egypt down the years? Charitably, you'd call it hit or miss. Generally awful. And I would submit the roots of that maybe right here as well. I'm going to say more about the law of the harvest this week on Beyond the Notes. But for now, let me offer you this. I, I, Russell, I should reap a harvest of hell. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as have you. And the wages of that sin, what I am owed for my sin, is eternal death, as it is with you. But the Lord who is the Lord of the harvest has initiated by his grace based upon the work of Christ on the cross, paid for on the cross, proven at the resurrection. He's borne the penalty for my sin so that I can experience a gracious crop failure of the harvest of hell that I deserve and now will not experience because of the grace of God. Praise God indeed. And this morning, if you've not come to faith in Christ, you might be tempted to say, yeah, but everything in my life's going so great. Yeah, and, and, and Abram's life it is too, between, between about verse 10 down to about verse 16. If you're outside of Christ right now and everything's going just great, you're like a cow on his way into the slaughterhouse saying, I don't see what the big deal is. Anybody who runs a slaughterhouse will tell you you keep the cows content. Because they get all adrenalinized and tense, the meat doesn't taste as good. You're a contented cow in Satan's spiritual slaughterhouse if right now you're outside of Christ and you think you're doing great. You are being anesthetized from real reality 
while hell looms beneath your feet. Come to Jesus with urgency. This morning, if you're a child of God and there are things in your life you need to deal with, repent, address it, get real with God. Maybe by his grace, some of your crops will fail. But if you're walking with God, that passage in Galatians goes on to say, don't get tired of it. If you're so into the spirit, don't get tired of it. You don't always reap the day you sow. Sowing sometimes can take a while. Trust God's spirit, keep sowing. Live for Jesus, live for Jesus, live for Jesus. And when you're tired of living for Jesus, keep on living for Jesus. Pray for strength and live for Jesus. Stay in his words, stay in your prayer, stay consistent and passionate in your love for those whom he sends into your life.